All right. Good morning, y'all. Um, again, my name is Chandler. I'm the RUF campus minister at Carson Newman University, uh, right across the street. And before uh, before we dive into the uh, the message this morning, I want to uh, take a couple minutes to tell y'all a little bit about um, who we are, what's going on, who I am, all those kinds of things. Um, and uh, and also to say thank you because Providence has really blessed RUF in a lot of uh, really unique ways. So. Um, I'm going to wax philosophical about that for a second. Um, I'm, I'm not a philosophical person. Sorry, John. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are, uh, we are the campus ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Um, if you guys have had the privilege of meeting uh, Chris Talley, who is planning uh, Lakeway Prez in Morristown, um, that's our denomination. That's our sister church. Uh, and we're really grateful um, for him and for that uh, for that work, but um, we are uh, we're not a, we're not a ministry that is just for Presbyterian kids because we would be sorely lacking uh, doing that at Carson Newman. Um, but we're we're uh, we we say every week we, we try to remind our students um, every week uh, not just for new students to figure out who we are, but for our students to remember who we're striving to be, that we are a, uh, we're a community of students learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. And what we mean by that is we're trying to build a community. We're trying to help students find their friends, to find the people that they will experience uh, the ups and downs of college life with. Um, we are trying to help students learn to love God. We don't assume that just because we're at a Christian campus that everybody walks, who walks on campus is a believer. Uh, we don't assume that they're not believers. Uh, we assume that everybody is in a different place. And so if a student walks through the door um, who knows Jesus, loves Jesus, uh, that we want to be a place for them to be able to grow in their faith, to be encouraged, uh, to go deeper with it. Um, for students who come in and college has been hard and they're starting to ask a lot of questions, we want to be a place that can engage those questions and those doubts uh, honestly and from a biblical uh, point of view and not to um, try to give them a, you know, Romans eight twenty eight and call me in the morning situation, but, but very much engage their questions and engage their struggles. And for students who are not believers who kind of came in because uh, there was food or um, girls, which I'll tell you a story about that in a second, um, that they might find something more satisfying than physical food or physical relationships. <laughs> Um, and then we say we're learning to love Carson Newman. We want to embrace our campus. We want to uh, be involved and be present with things that are going on, to love our campus well. And then, uh, again, we say that we're doing that together. And I, I do want to tell you a story. Um, one of the unique things about Providence is that for roughly a year and a half, uh, we had our large group Bible study in here. Um, and uh, so it's really cool to be back in here because I haven't been in here since since then. So, um, But it's been really cool um, to think back because – um, I think it was, I don't, time doesn't make sense to me right now, so I'm not going to try to put a time on it. But um, while we were meeting in here, uh, there, was a, there was a junior guy that, uh, that came, that started coming to RUF. Um, he had some friends that were involved. They really started inviting him, um, and, he, and, and he was not a believer at all, was not interested in spiritual things, had no questions about God or the Bible, really had no context for any of it. But he heard that we had free food and there were girls here. And so he starts showing up, uh, and um, his friends are really excited because, because he, he really hadn't kind of shown any sort of interest in anything spiritual. Um, I'm gonna, I hate this microphone. I'm going to try to make sure it stays in the right place. Um, but, uh, y'all, over the course of a year, um, he starts coming to RUF. He starts uh, really engaging with um, 
with what we were talking about, and I knew, uh, I knew we had him when he heard what we were having for dinner that night at RUF and then brought his own food because he didn't like the food but wanted to be here for the, for the fellowship. Um, and, and basically, over the course of a year, just little, little conversations, little things here and there uh, started to make sense for him. And, um, and uh, y'all, praise the Lord, I got to baptize him last October. Uh, and and that is, that's the work, that's part of the work that, um, that we're doing on campus is, is bringing students uh, the word of God. And so um, you guys can help us out with that. Um, again, you already have in so many ways. Um, but uh, one of the things you can do is please, please, please be praying for us. Um, be praying as we, um, as, as mine and my wife's life, like our, we're, it's about to get crazy for us. We're going to have to um, just due to having a baby, um, stepping away from the ministry for uh, for a few weeks, pray for our student leaders that they'll uh, keep things going. Um, pray for our guest preachers that they'll uh, continue to bring the word. Um, and then another another thing that we do rely on is we do rely on financial support. Um, and uh, if if that is remotely interesting to you, um, come talk to me after the service. We'd love to talk to you about that. And if you don't have any money, just pray for us because that's more powerful than money anyway. But we we also want your money. So. Um, uh, uh, and I, I trust that you take that in a in a good spirit. Um, so that's who we are. That's what we're about. We're so thankful for Providence. We're so thankful uh, to get to be here with y'all this morning. So um, now we'll turn our attention to um, to God's word, and uh, we're going to look at Psalm one this morning. So uh, listen uh, now uh, to the word of the Lord. This is Psalm one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that we've been able to gather this morning to sing uh, praises to you, Lord, to enjoy uh, the community, a fellowship that you give us um, in the church. Uh, and uh, Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing uh, here at Providence, Lord, and um, for um, God, for the, for the sweet partnership and friendship that we've had uh, with this church over the years. I pray you'll bless that. Lord, I pray now as we um, as we turn our attention to trying to understand your word, God, that you would this morning strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, y'all, I love the Psalms. Uh, and any chance that we get, any chance that I get to talk about the Psalms, I'm going to take it. Um, because I think this is one of the most... Um, I think this is one of the most important books of the Bible. In one sense, they're all important, of course. Um, but... I think the Psalms, I think we just connect with the Psalms in such a different way uh, than we do with any other, um, any other books of the Bible. And, and, there's, and there's, two, there's two reasons for that. One uh, is kind of a biblical reason, and the other is kind of an anecdotal um, life experience reason. Uh, but biblically, I think we connect with the Psalms differently because the Psalms were the book of hymns and prayers that God gave to his people. That, uh, that God said, when you come... Uh, when you come to worship me, hear, hear the songs and the prayers that, that I'm giving to you. Now, I don't think that that means that we can only use uh, the psalms in our, in our prayers and our music. Of course not. 
Um, but I do think that these are so helpful for us because uh, what they do is they document the history of God's people. That as you work through the Psalms, uh, you see you see the whole story of the Bible. You see creation. You see uh, the giving of the law. You see the establishment of the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, you see um, the establishment of the throne of David as, as God chooses his man to sit on his throne. You see uh, the, the, the just devastation of the exile. You see this, this underlying uh, longing for the one who would come and do all of the things that the Psalms promise us will be done one day. They cover the full range of our, of our emotions. You, you experience the highest of highs in the Psalms. And then you also experience the devastating lows of, 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 of hopelessness and wondering, uh, where is God? If you don't believe me, go home and read Psalm 88 after this, because you'll be like, how did that make it in the Bible? But it did. The Psalms teach us how to sing, how to pray, how to rejoice, how to repent. And uh, Tim Keller said uh, before he died that 65 books of the Bible speak to us, but the Psalms speak for us. And and I love that because what that is is an encouragement. If we're ever finding uh, ourselves not knowing what to say to God, not knowing how to pray, not knowing what to sing, just pick a number between 1 and 150 and open to that Psalm, and there you go. That's why we have them. But anecdotally, I love the way that music forms us and shapes us the way that nothing else does. Think of your favorite song, your, your, your favorite song in, in the entire world, that, uh, the song that as soon as it comes on, you, you know every word, you know every uh, instrumental break, you, you, know, you know how this works every time because you love this song. I'm going to guess that you don't love this song because you, uh, you appreciate the chord progression. Or because you, you appreciate the way that, well, this, the, way this, the way this balance is mixed, like it hits it. No, you love the song because of the way it connects to you, because the way it helps you understand your situation better. That's why we love the Psalms. That's what they do for us. They, they speak for us, but they also connect with us in a way that a lot of times, um, you, know, you know, prose and narrative and those other things don't. And that's not to say that those things aren't important. They're very important. Like, Please hear me say, read the rest of your Bible, um, but also read the Psalms because they're super important. And so um, with that in mind, that's why I love to study, um, study the Psalms. They invite us to engage with them and then to sing them back to God. They connect us with him in ways that nothing else does. Eugene Peterson, uh, who's, a, who's a pastor and a writer that I love, he says, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God that we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything that he speaks to us. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. So the Psalms inform us of who God is, but they also teach us how we are to respond to him. And so Psalm 1, the Psalm that we've just read, this is a Psalm of wisdom. Psalm 1 is an invitation to live the life of wisdom. And I think it's a, it's a good question for us to always be asking, how do I live a life of wisdom? How do I pursue wisdom? Psalm 1 shows us this by doing three things. It shows us the two paths of living, uh, the two pictures of these paths, and then the two destinations of these paths. And so if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, those are the points of the sermon, uh, the, the paths of living, the pictures of the paths, and the destinations of the paths. So, the two paths of living. 
right off the bat, the psalmist gives us um, two paths. That's it. We are a people who hate either-or situations. Like, if I give you an either-or, you're going to be like, well, I think this one, but also, like, what if there's, like, a, you know, like a third way or, like, something else that we can maybe do both? Like, we hate, we hate binary situations, that you have to choose one or the other. We like the idea that life is this open-ended thing where we can kind of figure it out along the way uh, and we can do um, kind of whatever we want because it's going to end up okay. And the Bible says no. There are two paths. There's a path of wisdom, and there's a path of wickedness, and that's it. Those are the only two options. Um, now, it's not to say that to choose the life of wisdom is to, is to live a certain way uh, that ends up uh, looking like the average kind of white evangelical family with two and a half kids and a minivan and a golden retriever or two in our case. Um, but it is saying that there is one set path that leads to the good life, and one set path that leads to destruction. And Psalm 1 does not leave any ambiguity about what the right choice is. And these two paths are the path of the blessed and the path of the wicked. And so we start off with the path of the wicked. Verse 1 shows us what this looks like. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we need to ask, who are these people? Who are the wicked? Who are the sinners and the scoffers? Um, And the progression of this, I think, is important to understand. But see, when we hear the word wicked, we tend to think of people who are kind of like so far gone that there's no good left in them. Like you say wicked and like my mind goes to um, like Thanos in in the MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? Like Thanos, clearly bad guy. Like, He's talking about things like killing half the universe. And then, and then he's like, you know what? That actually wasn't good enough. Uh, I'm going to kill the whole universe, right? Like when somebody starts talking about things like genocide, we know, hey, red flag for wickedness, right? Like I hope that's a fact we can all agree on. Um, we, like, like that's what we tend to think of as far as like wickedness is concerned, that, that you're maybe as bad as you can possibly be and there's no good left in you. But biblically, when the Bible talks about the wicked, the Bible is talking simply about those people who are living their lives apart from the will of God. And sometimes that includes us. Sometimes we find ourselves living out of the will of God, and, and so we fall in this category of the wicked. And I don't, I don't think that the progression here is necessarily like walking with the wicked then standing with the sinners and then sitting with the scoffers, but it does kind of show us what rebellion against God looks like. To walk in the counsel of the wicked is to begin to um, take counsel from the world, is to begin to listen to, um, uh, to, to listen to the counsel of the world and to let its thinking begin to dictate our thinking, that we begin to think um, the way the world does. And that's not to say that there's no such thing as common grace insight. I mean, obviously, um, obviously there, there are things that are said outside of the church, outside of the faith that, uh, that are good and wise and that we, need to, um, that we need to listen to. But it's when we start to give those things added weight simply because they work or because they're pragmatic or because they sound good. To, to walk in the counsel of the wicked is to begin to take the wicked's advice without weighing it against God's word, without seeing, is this, is this true? Is this beautiful? But then we start to see that, that that gives way to standing in the way of sinners, that we begin to follow the world's ways. 
that our thinking, uh, our thinking always shapes our actions. And, and, and we see that as we've taken the counsel of the wicked, that that starts to shape our actions. We begin to do the things that um, make us start to look like we are standing in the way of sinners. We begin to align ourselves with what is evil. And then we see that that leads to sitting in the seat of scoffers, that we become outright hostile to the things of God. The progression uh, looks like this. We begin to take advice from the world, and we, and we consider that advice without weighing it against the word of God. We start, to, we start to act like the world. We start to think like the world, and then we start to identify with the world. And the thing about the, the, the seat of scoffers is that um, it's not that like scoffers are not redeemable, um, but it is that when the Bible talks about people who are scoffing at God's word, these are the people who are, are kind of outright mocking it and ridiculing it. And so they, they, don't, they don't even see their need to, to change course. And so this leads us to ask the question, what is it or who is it that you're following? And when we talk about like the world, like as evangelicals, we love to talk about the world. Um, it, it can be this super nebulous, super unhelpful way to talk because we can kind of um, mold that to mean anything. And so I think, I think we, we, we see this in the writings of uh, the great American philosopher, um, Jiminy Cricket, uh, who says, let your conscience be your guide, right? In other words, follow your heart. Do what you think is right. Do what makes you happy. Be true to yourself, these kinds of things. But the contrast to this life is in verse two, that the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on God's law day and night. So we've set up what this path of the wicked looks like, and now we're going to look at what the path of the wise looks like. And what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to delight in something? Uh, bo- both, of my, both of my boys uh, went through phases where they loved trains, which is awesome because we live what feels like five feet away from a train track. Um, and, and it's sort of one of those things that, like, we just kind of like hated it and like t- like tuned it out so that at this point people will come over like how do you not like wake up all night? I, like, I don't even hear the train anymore like it's not even a thing but my boys went through these phases where they loved trains they loved uh, they love Thomas the Train. They love off-brand Thomas the Train. They they have all these like wooden train tracks and things, and they have books about trains with pictures of trains. We just we love trains in our house to the point that every single time the the train would come by, they would run to the window. They would run to our front window and look at it and watch the train go. And then run to our side window and watch the train keep going. And, and when it would happen, they would be like, "Mom, Dad, train, choo choo, choo choo," and they would drag us with them to look at the trains. And, 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 y'all, I think that is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to delight in something. Because not only do you find something that captures your heart and captures your imagination, but you want to drag everybody else along with you to see it. It's like you're saying, this is the thing that my heart loves. And this is the thing that I long to see. And this is the thing that I want you to come along and see with me. That's what it means to delight in something. And, and I, I can't really define that. We can't really define what that is, but we all have those things that we delight in. And so what Psalm 1 is telling us is that the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and by law of the Lord, the psalmist means the first five books of the Bible, but for, for New Testament believers, it means just the Bible itself, right? The whole, the whole scripture. 
that for us to delight in that, we see that we have that in Christ. We have that in the church. And so how do you know what it is that you're delighting in? How do I know that if I'm delighting in the way of the wicked or if I'm delighting in the law of God? So what, ask yourself, what, what's your goal in life? What is it that you long to get out of the things that you do, out of the way that you raise your children or the way that you approach your job or you approach school or whatever? Are you, are you striving to, to please God or to please yourself and those around you? Are you, are you longing to be in right relationship with God or to make money or to be loved or, or, or whatever else? Right, because I, I don't think, um, just thinking of, a, of, an, of an example like with our, with our students, like I don't think any of our students uh, kind of wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm gonna go cheat on a test today. There, there's, there's usually a series of decisions and a path that they've walked to get them to that point. The progression of thoughts and actions that eventually lead to it based on what your heart is pursuing. See, if, you're, if your goal in life, if a student's goal in life is to make straight A's at, at any and all cost, then eventually that decision is going to be made for you. Um, in the words of another of my favorite American philosophers, 50 Cent, if your goal is to get rich or die trying, that decision has already been made for you. You've walked a path to get you to that point. So whatever your heart or your brain is set on is what you will pursue at any expense. And the Bible is telling us that that's either going to lead to life or to death. Those are the only two options. But then the psalmist sketches out what the, the pictures of these paths begins to look like. And, and we see these images in, uh, in a tree and in chaff. And I, I love it when the Bible illustrates stuff for us because that means I don't have to like do a lot of research and illustrations. I can just go with what the Bible says. That's fun. Um, but the life that delights in the law of the Lord is the tree that's planted by streams of water. It yields fruit and it does not wither. This life has roots, it has nourishment, it is productive, it is constant. And the life that doesn't is like chaff. And I don't have any idea what chaff is. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, our, our farming friends like John can tell us what chaff is and explain that better. But I've come to understand that chaff is the part of the plant that just kind of like, falls off and blows away. Somebody compared that to like if you're eating peanuts and like you crack the shell, but then there's that weird red papery thing that like it doesn't really have any, it doesn't contribute anything to the peanut at all. Um, and so you just kind of peel it off and it blows, like that's, that's chaff. That's, the, that's what I think the, the illustration is, weightless, useless, and pointless. But this doesn't mean that the blessed life is necessarily the happy life. This doesn't mean that if you're walking in the path of wisdom that you're gonna be just happy and just killing it all the time. Because if you look, a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. A third of the Psalms are Psalms that say, God, life does not make sense right now. Where are you? You've promised us that you're good. You've promised us that you're for us. And yet we don't see that. That is a third of the Psalms. And this is not an invitation for us to avoid grief and sadness and anger and guilt and shame, but it's an invitation to live a life that isn't destroyed by these things. It's an invitation to, to live a life that experiences these things, but not in ways that uproot us and completely, um, completely devastate us. And the only way that we do that is to be rooted deep in God and his word. So what are you rooted in? What do you delight in? 
if you ever give yourself a minute, uh, maybe on a, on a break at work or you know, before you fall asleep at night, if you ever give yourself a minute to, um, to just think about your day and to reflect on your life, and I don't even want to assume that you do that because I don't always do it. <laughs> and, 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 and busyness and then just not wanting to think about things, that, that always kind of um, comes to us. But, but, but when you take that minute to think about your day, what, what validated that day for you? What made that day good or bad? Was it your grades for students? Was it, was it maybe having a great day at work and, and you know, closing some deals or whatever it is that you do? Was it, was it your reputation? Was it your parents or your friends' approval? Was it your ability to just absolutely like crush it in your quiet time that day, to go all out in worship? Did that emotional high that you felt um, from what, whatever happened, it, like is that the thing that validates your day? And if those are the things that validate our days, what happens when we don't do, do those things? What happens when work goes horribly? What happens when um, we're impatient with our children? When we speak a crossword to our husband or to our wife, we fail a test, we have a bad hair day, we put on a little weight that we can't help but notice even if nobody else does. Our reputation takes a hit. What if even 15, 20 minutes ago, we're singing these songs and you just kind of were going through the motions, you just didn't feel anything? Because look, y'all, the storms in life are gonna come. And if we're trying to find our validation in the things that we do, in the things that we produce, then we're walking in the path of the wicked. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the storms of life are gonna come. They will happen. They will happen unexpectedly. They will happen suddenly. Uh, one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen are, um, are the oak trees in New Orleans. Um, I'm, I'm from Mississippi. Um, I lived in Mississippi in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit. And one of the things that was so amazing about the city of New Orleans is the way that these oak trees weathered that storm. Why? Because their roots are deep and their roots are gnarly. They are not always attractive, but they are deep and they are strong. And in times when the rest of the city is destroyed, these trees stand strong. That's the picture of the blessed life. It's not one that avoids storms. It's not one that avoids difficulties. But it's one that has deep roots that are thriving and productive. And then what are the two destinations of, this, of these two paths? Verses five and six are fairly obvious. One path leads to life, one leads to death. Great, what do we do with this? And it'd be really easy to stand up and say, y'all do better. Here's the three easy steps to, to live the life of wisdom. And, uh, and then say, who wants to accept Jesus? And then we pray and then we go do whatever it is we're gonna do next. Think about God more. Stop all the things that are bad for you. And listen, all those are good advice. Like, please stop doing the things that are bad for you. <laughs> like, they're not good for you, don't do them. Do better, read your Bible more. Like, yes, do those things. But if, but if all I do is stand here and give you good advice, then I've left you with really bad news. Because the news behind all of that is this is up to you. You figure it out. So if what we've just read is true, and it is, how do, I, how do we live the life of wisdom? How do we do this? And here's the really simple one-step answer. You can't. 
Like if we read Psalm 1, we should walk away convicted that I can't do this. Even on my best days, I cannot do this. Because Psalm 1 invites us to wisdom, but it convicts us of our inability to be wise. Even our best intentions are steeped in the counsel of the wicked, which in turn shapes our actions in the ways of sinners, and at times has even sat us directly in the seat of scoffers. And if and we have not begun to take the first steps of righteousness if we read Psalm 1 and think that we can do this. Which is just great news, right? Like, where's the hope? There's a Bible teacher named Joseph Flax who once visited the Middle East, and he had the opportunity uh, to address a gathering of, of Jews and Muslims. And after they had read Psalm 1 together, he asked, who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks, this man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers, who was absolutely a sinless man. And the room was silent. Nobody spoke. So Flax said, was he our great father, Abram? Abraham? And one elderly man said, no, it, it cannot be Abraham. He denied his wife and told a lie about her. He said, what about the lawgiver Moses? Flax asked. No, somebody else said. It can't be Moses. Moses killed a man, and he lost his temper by the waters of Meribah. Flax then suggested David, but it could not be the adulterer and the murderer David either. Flax said there was a silence for a long while before an elderly Jew arose and said, My brothers, I have a little book here, and it's called the New Testament, and I've been reading it. And if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. You know, that's our hope in this psalm. It's not that we're able to live it, but that Jesus Christ himself is the one who lived Psalm 1 perfectly. He's the only one who did everything that this psalm asked us to do and avoided uh, what it asked us not to do. But why did he do it? And I think, I think it hinges on this word delight. The Psalms use the word delight in a couple of ways. One, uh, as we've seen, is it's calling us to delight in the law of the Lord. It's calling for us to do something. But also in Psalm 18, we see that the Lord rescued us because he delighted in us. And this is the same language. It's the same language as Hebrews 12, where it says that Christ endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy, for the delight that was set before him. And this always reminds me of uh, the, movie, uh, the movie Hook. Um, if you're familiar with that movie, it's a movie where um, uh, Peter Pan has grown up and he's left Neverland. Um, and so we find uh, Peter Banning, played by Robin Williams, just kind of living, uh, living his life when Captain Hook comes and kidnaps his children and brings them back. Brings them back to Neverland. And, and, and Peter gets there, and I mean, it's a, go watch the whole movie. It's a great movie. But he gets there and he finds he's kind of lost. He's lost his touch. He's not Peter Pan anymore. But worse than that, he realizes that his son has chosen the path of Captain Hook. And, and, and you actually see this progression where uh, when the final battle scene finally happens, uh, Peter's son is standing there next to Captain Hook, dressed just like him, same suit. 
you know, whatever. But, but, but the whole thing that Peter has to do is Peter has to regain, he has to regain his happy thought, right? He's got to figure out, like, what was the thing, what's the thing that really brings me joy that, that makes all of this worth it? And in the, ba- in the final battle when Peter and the lost boys show up to fight Captain Hook, Peter flies up to his son and he says, he says, do you know what my happy thought was, Jack? He says, it was you. And y'all, this is the life of wisdom. It's to realize that Christ went to the cross for the joy, for the happy thought of knowing us. Yes, it was to glorify his father, but it was to save his people. And so the life of wisdom is giving yourself to the only one who could stand in the judgment, but willingly succumb to it. To the one who hung on a tree and withered and died despite being the tree of life himself. To the one who knows you and invites you to know him. Y'all, this is the good news of Psalm 1. This is the invitation to the life of wisdom. To trust that Christ, by his life, his death, and his resurrection, achieved the life of wisdom for you. That he did it for you. He empowered you to live it. And he calls you back home to confess your sin and to repent when you stray from that path. This is the life of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us uh, this psalm. We thank you that you have, uh, you have in fact lived it for us. You have lived it on our behalf and you invite us, uh, you invite us in, um, Lord, to live it with you. Knowing that it's secure. Knowing that you've done it for us. And Lord, I know that uh, many of us simply need encouragement in this. Um, many of us simply need to know that even though we strayed from the path, you call us back that you want to restore us, you want to be with us, that you pursued us for the joy that was set before you. Lord, maybe some of us are trying really hard to live this life of wisdom on our own and we just find ourselves frustrated and continually failing. God, would today be the day that we would come to know and love you and see you for who you are, to see you for what you've done for us. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Y'all stand back up.